Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Source, whatever that might actually be, speaks to us in many ways, even when we're not paying attention. Or maybe, especially when we're not paying attention, though of course we don't notice. In our society, most of us sleepwalk through the day only half aware, driven by one emotional impulse after another that we're barely conscious of until they've already escaped beyond our control. Too often through behavior, we likely prefer to forget or ignore. But source, whatever it is, can be persistent and keeps knocking on the front door of our awareness until somebody answers and gives it some attention. That can happen during meditation, in ceremony, through psychedelics, and it can also happen through art. Some art plucks the strings of our spiritual center, provoking an awareness of our interconnection, of our dance with transcendent forces. That art can come through as a poem, as song, in a dance performance, as an image, but it can also appear as part of an intuitive practice that circumvents our materialist miasma, such as tarot. Tarot decks are more than the images drawn or painted on each card. They are a closed circuit of meanings that rebound against each other and vibrate with a specific resonance. Each card has a connection to the others, and together they form a web of meaning. A tarot card reading provides source an opportunity to speak to us through metaphor. When our defenses are lowered, and as we allow ourselves to feel our way into understanding. Tarot has returned as a popular intuitive practice in our time, and the wild unknown tarot, a New York Times bestseller, has become one of the definitive decks of the decade. Kim Krantz's delicate and numinous pen and ink deck has an indie music confidence about it. Its line is both quivering and direct, subtle but assertive. Real beings seem to shine through her careful portraits. If you don't know the wild unknown, I suggest you check out Kim's website and Instagram while listening to this podcast. You're in for a treat. The website is thewildunknown.com, and she's Kim underscore Kranz, K-R-A-N-S, on Insta. As Kim talks about on today's episode, the Wild Unknown deck and the decks and books since appeared as she opened herself towards synchronistic and mystical currents in her own life, then led her in directions that she never saw coming. She describes her approach to making this art as a way of being fully present, in the moment, alert to whatever emerges. The result are decks like her Animal Spirit Guide deck that offer its users avenues to their own intuitive exploration. Her new book, The Wild Unknown Journal, invites you to be a co-creator, to draw or paint in collaboration with the suggestive images Kim offers as a starting point freeing up your own creativity as a way to discover the ineffable inside, waiting, maybe too patiently, for you to give it expression. 
Artist and author Kim Krantz received her BFA at Cooper Union in New York, her MFA at Hunter College, and is currently pursuing an MA in Jungian Psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute in California. She teaches events and workshops that activate the forces of creativity and radical transformation through creative practices, meditation, and movement. Kim lives on the West Coast where she surfs, draws, and wonders at those big wonders of life. You can meet Kim in the coming weeks, touring for the Wild Unknown Journal. The dates are on our website. As I finished prepping this introduction, I picked a card at random from the Wild Unknown to capture the essence of this interview. I got Daughter of Pentacles. Here's what it says in the guidebook that goes with the deck. You'll find the Daughter of Pentacles behind the scenes rather than out in the spotlight. Though quite shy, she's extremely hardworking and responsible. She handles details and logistics well. People depend on her. She has vast amounts of inner strength. Like all of the Pentacles family, the daughter thrives when she is in nature. I give you Kim Kranz after this word from our sponsor. Evolver is the proud parent of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary dedicated to the healing power of plants. At the Alchemist Kitchen, we work with the finest herbalists who are producing high-quality botanical medicines, herbal remedies, and whole plant beauty products. At the Alchemist Kitchen, we're now in the season of the witch, a celebration of the feminist counter-mainstream witch movement. The Alchemist Kitchen believes in the demystification of the witch and sees this archetypal figure as an essential part of our ethos. We see the good witch as integral to this mission. Beyond the natural healer, the witch represents divine femininity, the wild woman and the mystic. We strive to both defend this energy and encourage people to tap into their inner magic. We invite you to join us this season by attending events at our different locations. Check out our blog, shop on our website, read our Season of the Witch zine, browse our social media for witch tips and tricks. Today's episode with Kim Kranz is part of a series that started with Alison Gray and in the coming weeks continues with inspirational witches Robin Rose Bennett, Pam Grossman, and Starhawk. So watch for them. You can learn more at thealchemistkitchen.com, thealchemistkitchen.com, or stop by our flagship at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan between Bowery and 2nd Avenue. The Witch in Us celebrates the witch in you. So where are you right now? Where are you talking from? I am on the Oregon coast. I'm about 10 miles from the ocean in a geodesic dome. A geodesic dome? Did you build or you found? Where did you where did you get a geodesic dome? Well, <laughs> I know one doesn't stumble across them so easily, but it's a place that I found last fall, and I never really anticipated spending so much time here. But circumstances in my personal life have changed in such a way that I've been here for the last gosh, like eight months. And it's been amazing because I have just turned it into a kind of alchemical chamber of sorts and have a studio here where I've been working on new projects and I'm close enough to the ocean that I can be surfing 
and I'm in a uh, national forest and it's just been a wild experience. That's fantastic. It's a, I mean, is that a studio space only or a work live space too? Or you're... It's a work live space. It's a really amazing house, but the bottom floor kind of overlooking the river and the, the mountain across the river is a studio. So I moved in and I don't think that I'll be here, uh, too much longer. It was always uh, a place that I intended to be an artist's kind of retreat, like a either a rental or a place that myself and my community can come to do creative projects. Do you do a lot of creative projects with your community? Oh, I just mean like if my friend needs to finish her her book, she can come out here for a week and stay or two weeks or, you know, that kind of thing. I don't do that many collaborative projects. There's always someone looking to finish the album or, or finish the manuscript or carve out that kind of space and time that we're all looking for. And so although I don't do like creative community projects in a collaborative sense, there is always a space that's needed for people to make things. And this, this dome has this inherent creative feeling to it as soon as you walk into the space. I mean, it literally looks like a, a cauldron or a sphere, you know? So it, it's a really amazing space to work in and create in. That's awesome. Yeah, eventually it will be available for, for more people than myself. So when you first walked in there to make it the creative space that would be right for you, what did you do? Did you do a smudge? Did you bring an intention? Did you create a, a, a particular kind of you know, ceremonial initiation for the space so there would be a place where you could go? I certainly did a smudge. I was very minimalist in how much stuff I moved into the space. But as I said, I wasn't anticipating moving here. I mean, I left a 12-year marriage um, and ended up out here and closed on this property I think actually this story is meaningful and, and makes sense actually as far as how to try to move through transitions, um, especially as a creative. And so I moved out here not so much intending to move out here because, I mean, some part of me certainly did, but 10 days after I closed on the property, I was, you know, in a U-Haul, like moving my stuff out here. The ceremony... I guess I would call it more like the, the the ritual or the transition or the threshold, whatever it was that I crossed from that life into this one. I tried to do it as tenderly and simply as I could because of the space I was in, you know, personally and uh, emotionally. At the same time, I had these like looming big creative deadlines with my publisher that kind of kept me anchored. So as much as I was going through this big change and trying to, you know, smudge the studio, keep it a kind of uplifted creative space, I also needed to just like get out the pens and papers and, and meet the deadlines and like get to get to work, which was looking back like the best thing that could have happened to me. So on one hand, there is the more esoteric steps that one can walk through or that I tried to walk through. But then on the other hand, there's this really palpable, physical, literal working and tending to the tasks 
that are meaningful to a person that that really anchored me through all the change. In the Wild Unknown Journal, which I have sitting on my lap, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful book. You know, congratulations on this. It's just it's done with so much clear, you know, intention and sensitivity, um, and it's a joy to look at. And it's a real invitation for people to to participate in their own creative process, their own creative journey. You talk about how practice is important to you. And it seems like practice is almost like a form of, of grounding in meditation, that actually the making of stuff, the action is, you know, a big part of your your own process. Exactly. And that's actually the book that I was finishing during that time. There's this theme in the journal about a labyrinth, the idea that anytime we begin a creative project, we're in a sense stepping into a labyrinth, whether we know it or not. In that, the creative project is going to present us with a challenge where we kind of have to circumnavigate a bunch of things rather than just going from point A to point B and quote unquote finishing or achieving the project. We're going to be pulled in many directions, uh, creatively, aesthetically, perhaps spiritually, emotionally that we didn't anticipate. So what looks like, Oh, I'm just going to make this short movie at first You envision that at the center of the labyrinth. I'm just going to get there and accomplish this. It actually takes you on a really big journey that involves, you know, some confusion and potentially some dissent or some disappointment and then elation and then new discoveries. It, It really, the creative process really takes us through many things. So using that labyrinth as a theme for the journal was pretty amazing, especially during that time in my life, because my life was, well, still is, but especially then was a total labyrinth. I mean, it took a turn that I never anticipated. And the idea with that labyrinth is that it's pulling you deeper and deeper and closer and closer toward a more central self or the center of the self or the deep self, whatever you want to call that place. And that's certainly what was happening for me in every way possible. (laughs) I was kind of (laughs) shooting myself in the foot when I was writing it. I'm like, really? (laughs) This was, this was, there was a mirror element going on. Exactly. On the cover of the book, there's a picture, a draw, a painting of a labyrinth. And at the center of the labyrinth is a drawing of an eye. You arrive at the eye. The labyrinth image aside, just the name, the wild unknown, you know, it kind of implies a labyrinth in and of itself. But I felt like I had to step into the unknown for real this year. And (laughs) it's like, you know, walk the walk a little bit with the name and just how challenging that really is in our lives. If we, you know, it kind of sounds cool, like the wild unknown, no big deal. Oh no, that's a, it's, <laughs> it, it's meant to be a challenge, right? The wild, un, if the wild unknown was known, it'd be a lot easier, right? Exactly. So when, when it really arrives and asks you like, Oh, Hey Kim, 
step off this ledge into the complete abyss of unknowing. I was kind of like, wow, way to pick a name, Kim. (laughs) And here we go. So what were the things that you did that would keep you in connection with that sense of I'm moving forward, I'm staying in my path? I'm not getting knocked over. Well, I was definitely getting knocked over at some moments. And then at some moments, I was also finding and am finding still this new path that feels like so liberating and so much what I've been searching for without really knowing it. And what is that? Can I ask what that path is? Like, how would you describe that to somebody? What have you found for yourself there? Oh, gosh, you're really asking the questions. I have found that if I'm going to be really honest, I've been on the path, but I've been hiding a bit. A bit is maybe a generous way to say it. I've been sheepishly on the path. And that has to do with maybe just kind of protecting myself or being unsure exactly how to navigate, um, the attention that the wild unknown tarot deck got and just um, the flood of like kind of continual questions we get from people and requests and about how to read your cards and all of these things. And I really, really withdrew the last few years. And in some ways that was to kind of build a little creative nest for myself and to keep creating because I felt like if I made allowed myself to be more accessible or more visible, that I wouldn't be able to continue making my artwork, which is really important to me. But for example, I haven't done really many podcasts at all. I don't do much press at all. I, I haven't really been visible in the community as a, as a, as a person, as myself. So this year has been partially me kind of paring down and figuring out what is essential about the wild unknown and my work, what are people really responding to, and then strengthening myself and my resolve to to show up for the community and for people who are interested in the work and the ideas that are brought forward through the work. I guess it's a long answer to the question, but I do want to get back to your earlier question of what did I do what practices did I do to get through that if time? Would, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. There were a couple of things that I did. I went to the ocean every day, rain or shine. And believe me in February on the Oregon coast, yeah. really gnarly. And sometimes I would just stand out there in the wind and rain and just, you know, it doesn't even matter if you're like crying or not. Cause you can't even tell <laughs> if you are. Wow. And I just let the ocean and salt water and the wind and the salt in the air do its own work. That was like my main commitment. You know, I I kept up with my meditation practice and my yoga practice and my creative work. But that that was the surrender piece, the giving over and the accepting what was. And I would just go out there with the request of like, show me the way. I don't know what I'm doing. And the bottom has fallen out. So, you know, show up, I'll show up for you if, if you show up for me kind of agreement and, and carry me along. So that was a 
that was a practice I used a lot. I worked a lot with um, music and listening to certain songs, you know, laying in Shavasana over, I would listen to a certain song every day over and over and over as a way to kind of energize and strengthen my body. A upbeat song or a more chill song? This happened to be a chill song. I mean, I would, I did, I did a lot of dance this year too, and that's obviously more upbeat, but yeah, there were certain songs that I worked with for a couple months at a time, just laying on the floor and listening, trying to like deeply actively listen to the song and allow it to like, again, almost do its work on me. That's beautiful. Cause you know, I have to say in your work, there's such attentiveness to detail, right? And to the sensitive ways that, that observation emerges in your own process and instructing people when they work with your cards or in the book, how to notice those little subtle things. And I love this idea that you're listening to the same song in Shabasana, which is essentially the corpse pose, lying on the ground, not moving, listening and noticing new things. That's really beautiful. Thank you. And thanks for, for noticing that kind of detail orientation to, to my work. I, you know, I was, um, I was traveling with my teacher in Africa a couple of years ago and I was listening to, we were on this bus like in the middle of nowhere in the jungle. And I, I had some kind of recording. Somehow I had my, I was listening to something, a song that I knew well. And I had this sudden realization that you can listen to a song with different parts of your body which is maybe to some people sounds totally kooky and to others are like, Oh yeah, that's obvious. You know, you, of course you can do that. But I had never listened to a song from different places. So I started to move the song around different parts of my body. And I would notice when I could listen from my stomach, from my navel center, from my heart, I would listen from the palms of my hands. And I was completely blown away at how, present that practice makes a person to, to the actual sounds that are coming in. So now I, I incorporate that when I'm in Shavasana, I'll try to spend, if you can do it for even like 10 seconds, listening to a song from your belly, it's a really, really unique experience. And I can just feel that it has a kind of healing nature to it and it's not cerebral. So as soon as you think, ooh, I'm really listening from my stomach now, that the actual sensation is gone. It's disappeared because you've gone up into your mind again. So it's a really cool felt experience that one can do with music and you can do it with mantra too, but I just love it. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. So that's one of the ways I use the song in Shavasana. I'm doing that tonight. I promise you. Oh, cool. <laughs> I've got to give that a shot. It is so cool. It sounds awesome. You have a real powerful connection to nature that comes through your work, that you went to the shore to open yourself to that, the gusts of the ocean, as part of your healing process and receiving. I'm wondering if that goes back all your life. Was that something you had as a child? Uh, for sure. I was raised on a farm, a small farm in Michigan. It was like 140 acres, middle of nowhere. What kind of farm was it? We had cows and horses, chickens. 
it was a self-sustaining farm. We didn't have a crop, but we bailed hay in the summer for our animals. We had like 32 cats at some point out in the barn and a bunch of dogs. I'm sorry, when you, when, when you had a self-sustaining farm, does that mean you weren't selling farm product? You were like their, yeah. your family was yeah. basically kind of a little off the grid and, and living in a sustainable fashion, but not necessarily wanting to, to dive in too much to, to, the, to the world of commerce? I mean, it was my grandparents' property. My mom bought the farm from her parents. So there was no crop. You know, both my parents were working. My dad was a truck driver and mom. my mom was a secretary at my elementary school. So they worked, but, you know, we also worked hard to just keep the animals alive. And we butchered a cow every year that would be in the freezer. And my parents deer hunted. And it was farm life for sure. And... I spent a lot of time outside on the four-wheeler. I was like on the four-wheeler and tractor, you know, very, very young. And there is just so much solace out there. And no matter how kind of chaotic things were in my family life or at school or whatever, I felt like there was this, the sacred temple was just always outside and always available. Oh, yeah, beautiful. So I've been going there for a long time since I was quite young. As you know, I have a shop called The Alchemist Kitchen. I'm a partner in The Alchemist Kitchen. We sell botanical products of different kinds and also books and different things. And we've been offering your work since day one, pretty much. And it's, it means a lot to the people in the store. And I mentioned yesterday that we're going to be doing this podcast to, to a couple of the herbalists. And they were like, wow. It's like, <laughs> they got really excited. <laughs> the way your work captures a connection to spirit resonates with people because of its, like I said before, its sensitivity. It's also very contemporary. It's like you're reinventing your depictions of these, you know, spiritual types of iconic images in a way that, you know, feels so of the moment. And when people look at it, it doesn't feel like it's some ancient history kind of, you know, like tarot deck from whatever, 150 years ago. But it's now, and it's like, oh, yeah, that, that feels right to me. Yeah. You clearly have got a connection to all these practices, to yoga and to meditation you just mentioned. And obviously, you must have studied the tarot. I'm wondering how that journey started for you. Well, it definitely started with the practice of drawing. It always comes back to drawing for me. And it really comes back to the line if you want to get really specific, the actual drawn line that I've been working with since I was like 15, I mean, pretty much every day. And so, you know, the meditation, the, the yoga, all of that stuff really came like later, later for me. But the practice that I had established in myself, in, in my body, in my hand, and the relationship between my hand and my eye was drawing. And that was through my first drawing teacher who I, I, I somehow stumbled upon a, a boarding arts school, Interlochen Arts Academy when I was like 15. And I left home and I went there and I had, this sounds absolutely crazy. I can hardly believe it, but I had five hours of art a day through three years of high school, through my sophomore, junior and senior years. Fantastic. Wow. That's a great gift. I mean, if this if you're an artist and you want to spend time, you know, developing your work, 
That doesn't happen in a lot of places. Believe me, my history, like a lot of the other things kind of like fell by the wayside. But as far as training me and training my hand and my eye, you know, we had figure drawing every day, one hour of figure drawing for three years, you know, from 15 to 18 years old and two hours of painting and two hours of sculpture or ceramics. And that was just working with materials and getting to actually know and observe material, like how does paint work? How does this glaze work on this ceramic vessel? So I came to tarot and I came to the more spiritual and esoteric much later, but I was, I had this like a visual linear craft of being able to draw that I couldn't, I at this point can kind of put whatever into that pool or into that lake and say, okay, let's mix this up now and see what happens. You know, people so often ask like, what do you think is effective about this deck? And I'm like, guys, I've been drawing for like 20 years now. Like if I can't, can't make this a potent visual thing that speaks and compels someone and kind of incorporates a deep idea into an image, then geez, I don't, I don't know what I've been studying all these years. The proverbial 10,000 hours. <laughs> Lots of people have got, you know, some uh, mileage under their belt and whatever practices that they're developing. Something else is going on also with you. This has to do with your, what it is you're perceiving and what you're allowing to come through and what you're going after. Was there a moment where you felt that the spiritual world became alive for you? Oh, man. Do you mean as an artist or like through my artwork or do you mean just as a person? Well, if you can make a distinction between those two things, I'd love to understand what that is. All I can say is when I made the tarot deck, I had just left New York City. I was there for 14 years. I was showing in galleries. The art market had kind of tanked. And so much of what I thought my life was going to look like, which was just a successful gallery artist, had crumbled. And I was devastated. Meanwhile, I had just moved into a church in Philadelphia, was living in there as like a loft space, a renovated church. And I'd always wanted to draw the tarot because I just felt like the ideas were so cool and there were no decks that I could really sink my teeth into visually. The feeling I had when I was making that deck was almost like a giving over to something else, to something that I didn't understand. And I wasn't trying to prove myself in a gallery. I wasn't trying to chase what I thought my life should look like. I just got really immersed in the themes and the archetypes of the deck. And I knew something different was happening. And at this point, I would look back on that and maybe with a little hesitation, I would use a word like channeling, but you might just say like being available for what's bigger than you to move through you. That's what happened when I was making that deck. I mean, sometimes I don't even feel like it's mine. I'm just like, it's this other thing that kind of happened. Was there a moment when you were drawing one of the cards where you went, oh, this is different? It happened when I drew the hermit card and it happened when I drew the chariot card in a big way. Interesting. You know, I, I, I was just around that time reading this text. I don't know if it's from the Upanishads or, or some like 
yogic scripture that talks about like this white horse at the center of the heart. It's just this beautiful image that it's leading us forward all the time. It knows like exactly where we're going, even if we don't know. But I had just drawn that card and I, I read that, like, I don't know, in the following days. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening with this deck? It almost felt like a kind of lightning moving through. And I was just like, oh, I got to get this thing out because it's so, has so much energy in it that I don't really understand. So putting it out was kind of a relief. And I put it out and it started to sell so quickly and there was no guidebook. And people were coming up with all kinds of like, I don't know, just somewhat disorienting interpretations of the cards. So I wrote the guidebook by hand in like such a short amount of time. It's like the whole thing just spilled out. It was really wild. The book, it's your handwriting, right? Do you, actually, you wrote the whole thing by hand. You didn't just typeset it using a, using a computer with your own, creating a typography, did you? Well, the first edition of the guidebook was actually handwritten. And then like in Photoshop, we were doing the edits. Like imagine editing a manuscript in Photoshop. We were like, oh, <laughs> what a nightmare. A comma there. <laughs> I don't know how it came to be. But then, you know, when it was published through Harper, we turned my handwriting into a font. And now ah, okay. everything is right. just, you know, by hand kind yeah. of. It has a feel. Yeah. So before you actually began to work on the, the tarot deck, what connection did you have to tarot? Were you doing readings for other people by that point? I was just dissatisfied with it. It's so funny how these things happen. I had a crazy aversion to it. I kind of hated it because I couldn't find a deck that worked for me. And I was just like, what is up with this? Why I would read guidebooks. I would read about the, the archetypes themselves. But I wasn't working with decks because I would push back on every single one I held in my hand. You were circling the tarot. Like, exactly. Did you have a reading at some point that made a difference for you? Where you went like, oh, that's wild. How did that, why is that working so well? well you know? I did have readings, but honestly, it wasn't like that either. It was just this constant agitation. It was like finding something that's just like never fits right and, and, and that agitation stays with you. If you think of the pearl coming from sand, it comes from that grit, the actual agitation of the grit. You know, you're, you're like the alchemist kitchen. So I'm going to go ahead with these alchemical um, metaphors. And one of the, of the alchemist's favorite images is the pearl, that it comes from agitation. It comes from grit. And I would say that this deck came from that, the unsettling. You know, if I had found a deck that I was like pretty into and was pretty into tarot in general, I wouldn't have made this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, 
So you never know as an artist exactly what ingredients we need to like push us towards making something. But I would say that dissatisfaction in what is or agitation is like a leading, very potent ingredient in the little vessel that we're working in in our studios. So the deck that you created, yes, it works as its own, as an artwork in itself, but it's also in a way a kind of criticism of previous tarot decks. <laughs> <laughs> is that fair? You- you can say that. Yeah, that's a way that you could say it. Well, I mean, listen, what you, here's what you did. You docked at the court cards. You like went, <laughs> oh, the page, the knight, the queen, the king. Goodbye. We're going to do... <laughs> Those don't work for me. I'm going to... Well, <laughs> it all, you know, it all filters through such a personal um, channel in the end. It's like those terms didn't work for me. I couldn't dig into them. And I figured if I can't dig into these, some of my friends probably can't dig into these terms either. Like, you know, what's a page? Come on, just give me, <laughs> give me something I can really dig into. Man, I got my PhD in pagedom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, now I'm actually working on a deck that will come out next year that, you know, it has the king and the queen in it. it it has the larger kind of more not that the familiar terms aren't like this but it has the archetypes more in place that i have since gotten comfortable with and studied more and worked with but at the time i just wasn't down with it i wasn't down with the knight and the king and queen it felt distancing to me and i kept wanting to make this deck like more and more accessible, more and more immediate and personal. And so those were my priorities. As you were making the deck, you were sharing the cards with folks in your circle to get feedback from them and kind of... Yeah, I was really using the focus group um, format. I was like interviewing friends about certain emotions and what images came up for them consistently, anytime anybody came to our house or for dinner or anything, I would ask them, okay, what do you think when you see this animal? When you think of this emotion, what creature do you think of? Or what image in nature do you think of? So it was a way of me trying to like tap into like, what images are we, are potent for us right now? Like what's, Carl Jung was really into this idea of like the compelling image. Like what is the most potent way we can get to this deep emotion or this deep archetypal energy. And that's always my priority. <laughs> What's the most potent image? And and the deck kind of became an exercise in finding those images. So there was a process where on the one hand, you're feeling something come through and you're getting a very clear sense of, okay, white horse. But then you're still open enough to be able to sit down with other people, show them a white horse and get a sense from them whether it resonates. Is that real? Well, honestly... You could say those two things are the same freaking thing. I mean, (laughs) you could say being open to it is simply being open to it. Whether it's a friend who mentions something offhand, an image that you can't get out of your mind, or if it's something that comes in like a deep meditation that kind of looks more like a typical channeling situation, or it could be something, you know, if you're into synchronicity, that that availability is happening like all the time. Uh, Burning Man, yes or no? <laughs> I haven't been, but uh, have you? I have, I have. Um, I haven't gone for a while. I'm, a, I, I'm, 
I haven't been for over a decade, so I'm a bit dated on it. But uh, it's synchronicity center for me. I mean, that's where the word synchronicity actually took on a whole nother level of meaning because of what the weird stuff that can just emerge while you're walking the playa. But tell me why you haven't gone. I can be so jaded (laughs) is why. (laughs) I mean, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about like hiding or kind of withdrawing or contracting is a better uh, word for it. And I have said no to many, many things as a kind of like defense or being able to kind of just hold myself in the way that I understand myself. And so this year has been uh, the year of saying yes to all kinds of new things. I mean, I went to a beloved festival, which is, it has a relationship to Burning Man. It's, it's in Oregon and it's, um, world music festival. That's just really, really beautiful. But I was asked to do live painting there, which I never would have done. Like the New Yorker in me is just like, who does live painting, you know? (laughs) But as soon as I did, as soon as I heard that, like, kind of shitty voice that holds me back from a lot of like fun adventures. Honestly, I was like, Oh, you have to do it this year. They had been asking me for a couple of years. So I went and I did live painting for like four days at this festival, you know, with like thousands of people kind of observing and interacting with me. And it was one of, like the coolest experience. It was so fun. And all made, right, beautiful. I know I made drawings there that I just never would have made otherwise. And, and so um, the long answer is is a jadedness that I am working towards dissolving. So maybe I'll see you there next year. Yeah, I've been, I'd like to go back next year. I'm, I mean, I had a number of friends who went this year for the first time, and it's not like they couldn't have gone 10 or 15 years ago, but something called them this year, and they all came back, all of them, frankly. Well, all but one came back going, that was fantastically awesome. And that was, uh, I think that for me was good enough for to kind of call me back there next year if I can somehow wrangle my schedule to allow for it. I think if it was two days, I would have been there, but I get a little like the duration. <laughs> it's a commitment. It's a commitment. I want to talk a little bit also about the, uh, the animal spirit guide, which emerged following mm-hmm. the tarot deck. What called you to that? Oh gosh. Again, I think it's funny how, how looking back, I'm like, Oh my God, so much of my work comes from resistance. It comes from, um, not feeling like there was I do love the medicine cards, but they have a, a an aesthetic to me that's hard to enter. I feel like they keep me out more than I can kind of delve into them. So it was, again, like I wanted to supply the doorway for people to walk through with creatures, both, you know, mythic or imaginal, and then ones that inhabit our, our real world day to day so that they could use the energy of the creatures if there wasn't a deck out there already that they could sink into. Your relationship with animals and animal spirit, I'm wondering if that's an extension of, of, of some kind of practice you might have tried or been involved with. Well, certainly in all kinds of different traditions, and you know whether it's pagan lineages or shamanic lineages, connecting to animal spirit is quite a thing. And I'm wondering if you might have played with that a little bit or pursued that since the beginning beginning of time we've been wondering about our relationship to animals it's one of the most mysterious and magical ongoing 
relationships to other that we have. The the whole deck was just like an exploration of of that idea of, of like I guess opening opening your hand or heart to like otherness, which are you know the creatures that we can't talk to in the most typical way, but no doubt have relationships with whether broken and damaged or loving and, and respectful. In a way, it was like any moment that I can get people to spend contemplating the creatures of our world, again, mythic or real, has a healing orientation towards it. It's going to be moving the, the pendulum like in the, what I would say, like the right direction, you know, as opposed to moving away from or ignoring the other that's in nature. Absolutely. I mean, I feel, you know, part of the the intention behind the Alchemist Kitchen, which is dedicated to the power of plants, very similar. Connect to nature, connect to all of the abundance that the planet has to offer and the spiritual aspects of that and how that can nurture you and help you in your healing and in your, frankly, you know, awareness of our deep interconnection. So that's a, this, I think one reason why we probably, we sell so many of your animal spirit decks. <laughs> People come in and they go like, this resonates, you know? It really comes down to a practice that's around the idea of separateness and working with that, whether it's plants or creatures or other people or really anything. It's like any time we can start to question or make that sense of separateness a little softer, we're moving towards what I really want to be moving towards. And and this almost goes back again to this idea of me on a personal level contracting or pulling back or saying no and trying to work with like softening and saying yes to more in my own personal life. And then you one begins saying yes to more images and one begins saying yes to more experiences and creatures and plants and kind of like softening the, the walls that we have that separate us from each other. Do you know your animal spirit? Do I know? <laughs> For some people, that's not a funny question. <laughs> you don't well, have to tell us what it is. I just like how you say it like it's so sure. Like there's, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you challenge my, my certainty that you have a animal spirit. Well, you know, Michael Harner in The Way of the Shaman. I mean, that's the whole, the introduction of shamanism to contemporary Western culture comes through an anthropologist, he's an anthropologist, I think, Michael Harner, who, you know, essentially studied these, the indigenous techniques, you know, where he learned how to call in his animal spirit guide. He then did workshops at the Open Center and all kinds of places in New York and around the country, helping people learn how to do this, leading people through a process. And then you have a whole generation of new age seekers who know their animal spirit guide. They know their spirit guide in the animal realm. And honestly, I've played with this a little bit myself and it's pretty amazing. So I was wondering if you had sort of walked down that road yet. I, I mean, on one hand, you know, my resistance to your question is just like, no, we have multiple, it changes, it shifts. It's a shapeshifter by nature. The animal is going to have a little bit of a trickster in it always. It's going to show up in different ways depending on what's most potent for us at that time. And at the same time, I do know my essential deep down animal that like resides deeply within me. 
So I, <laughs> both things feel true. You know, it makes me think of like James Hillman and Carl Jung were talking about this essential image of the self that each of us has this core image depending upon the like lexicon of the dreamer of the person it might not always show up as an animal it can be some of these other like um you know archetypal images of like uh an egg or a mandala or a a, a certain central image that guides the way so as much as I want to say we all can find our animal spirit, our animal guide, I know that the this, this system at hand is much more fluid than that and doesn't really like rules that much. So its, it's orientation is, is potency in my experience. And if that needs to show up as a, an empty room, the image of an empty room, the image of an open field or a mountain, then it, it will do that if that's more potent than the image of a, a snow tiger or a, a snow leopard or something of the sort. So I, I trust, I trust the image that, and the essence of the image, the archetypal energy behind the image more than I do any specific approach or technique to finding it. If that makes sense, these essential helpful allies will come to us in, in any form. It's like they struggle to get, they just want us to pay attention. They'll come through dream. They come through synchronicity, through repetition, through resistance. They're just scrambling, trying to get our freaking attention in the midst of all the other stuff we're paying attention to. So that's my rant. That's my rant for the power of the image. So once they begin to get your attention, how do you develop your connection to that thing that's coming to get your attention? Or do you suggest that people sort of just leave themselves open, let things come and flow through, it's all flowing through? Do you develop a, a relationship to that thing that's trying to get your attention? Oh my God, I do. I mean, I'm all for flowing through, but I get obsessed with a certain image. Jung called this amplification. It's like you, you see the image, you know the image, and you let it lead you forward. You find out where was this image used before? Like what mythology does it come from? What, who, who brings it up randomly and where am I seeing it in the world? Where does it show up in poetry in literature? What does it remind me of? And you just kind of, like I was saying, the practice of the song, you work with the image over and over and over. I mean, like I've been working with the image of the spiral for like <laughs> a really long time. I draw spirals all the time. I've been drawing them during our conversation. right? <laughs> and there are just certain images that will like continue to give and give and give and they're generative and they're like, it's unlimited how far you can go into an, an image. It's like a, a Zen riddle. It's, it just, the more you contemplate it, the more it gives. And, and the animals are like this too. The more you think you understand what an eagle really is. It's like the labyrinth. It pulls you deeper and deeper into its center. When you think you're there, the center's disappeared and you go further into it. I love that, this spiral. I'm actually, I, I pulled up the page in the Wild Unknown Journal of a drawing of a spiral. Oh, great. The word beneath it is continue, to flow out, to continue on. The spiral is an opening, right? Right. It doesn't stop. It feels like that's, that's a key 
key piece of your creative process. Yeah, I mean, the spiral can continue out, but if you had a pen that was small enough, you could also continue the spiral inward. Yes. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that would never have occurred to me. <laughs> What was your intention for this book, the journal, the Wild Unknown Journal? My intention was to give people a place that they could go to feel supported and encouraged and, I don't know, almost like uplifted or like, you know, take some of the pressure off of creative practice, just like to give people a starting point that they could just go from. So there's the single prompt on each page matched with an image. And it's just like, let's just play a little. Let's just, you can react to what I've done on the page. And then what you do on the page will change the perception of what I already did on the page. And just to like get us moving towards uh, a more creative life, we can get so stuck with seriousness and pressure and it's kind of like in yoga class when, or in a lecture when, you know, a teacher's talking and all of a sudden they'll say, okay, we're going to do a meditation now. And everyone gets really straight and rigid and serious. And they get like, they just hold themselves in a certain rigid way, which is fine. You, you know, it's great to have a tall spine, but like the same thing happens with creativity. There's a certain, like, you know, if you were to take a telegram with people, okay, here's a blank piece of paper. Here's some pens, pick a, pick a marker. We're going to make some drawings. You could just feel the room change. Like fear is in the air. Like, Oh my God, we're going to draw now. Oh God. You know, and all the memories come back about how uncomfortable it can be. So it's a way to kind of get, you know, fun sounds a little lighthearted, but I'm just going to say it. It's to bring the, the pleasure of making back into the creative process. That's, that's the heart of it. And to get people in a mysterious, curious space instead of one of self-judgment and one of essentially like shame, which um, keeps a lot of us from making things. The book itself has got, you know, a prompt on every page, a drawing in a word, but also a lot of space for you to contribute your own stuff and to essentially create a collaboration with Kim. As you're creating this, it's like an invitation for a collaborative process. And the way that I was looking at it, it felt like you were sort of demonstrating through this your own creative process. You're kind of laying out a way that you go about making stuff and suggesting to people here, you know, it's almost like a breadcrumb trail. You can follow it and, and see what it feels like. Is that fair? Right. It, it is. It's almost like the relationship between artists and alchemists is like really deep and old. And the alchemists were always asking like, what happens if, what, if, what happens if I add heat to this? What, if, what happens if I add, um, if I cool this, these materials down? What happens if I add the, the material no one expected? And so that is what I'm trying in some ways to do with this book is like the prompt is almost like an activator. It's an element or a, an, a, an attempt to like see what happens if. So on one page, there's like a drawing of a potato and it says the prompt is glorify. And it's like, it's a, it's a peculiar approach you wouldn't think that there would be a big a potato in the book in general 
And then glorify seems like a really odd prompt, but it's actually really helpful to use the brain in that way and to kind of accept the potato that's in the wild unknown journal. And the responses I've seen on Instagram so far, there's like a hashtag TWU, the wild unknown, TWU journal. And you'll see the potato and like what people are doing with the potato. And it makes me so stoked because, you know, we get so snobby and think like, oh, the the beautiful, important artwork has to be out, out of some beautiful, important image. And we forget the potato. And if you actually think about the potato as an image or as a vegetable or starch, it has allowed you know, decades of people to survive in the coldest climates, uh, you know, in the most challenging conditions. It's like such a survival tool, but yet we're like, oh, the dumpy, the dumpy potato. I can't even believe I'm talking about a potato on a podcast. It's so funny. <laughs> well, you drew the potato. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just a way to kind of like open our eyes a little bit more to, to what's, what's possible and light, lighten up a little bit, certainly for myself, see what happens. It feels like you have, this book really shows it too. You have a real connection with a community that is responding to the work that you're doing. I mean, as I can see from Alchemist Kitchen, there's this witchy thing going on now, a kind of a reconnection to the divine feminine as healer through connection to plants and to nature and to intuition. And you're holding a space in that world. And I'm wondering how that feels to you. And what do you see as the community that's, that this book is for? Well, as I kind of alluded to earlier, it's a, it's a community that I'm just starting to get more comfortable like being in and one that I want to show up more for in the future. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I know it will involve teaching more. I have some workshops next year and I'm headed on a book tour in October down the West Coast. It's like a creativity and surfing tour. I'm going to be doing uh, creative workshops using the journal and meeting people and then surfing along the way, which I'm very <laughs> excited about. Yeah. Surfing was kind of an extension of that ocean practice that I talked about earlier in the podcast. And it has really become like a, a practice of letting the larger forces of the world, letting them in and letting them do their work. You weren't doing a lot of surfing in Michigan. No, I, I, I certainly wasn't. It's a, it's a new obsession of mine, actually. <laughs> but anyways, I'll be doing that that tour next month. So all I can say is I want to I want to show up more as a more authentic version of myself, which probably means you know it's like less email marketing and less Instagram marketing, but showing up in a more clear way. So I'm just excited to actually start meeting the community and getting to know what is the community looking for and why are they so compelled by the tarot and some of these other projects and how can we continue to support each other and move forward? And it's almost like I'm in an, in my own alchemical experiment with, with the community, uh, just watching what people are responding to and what they're, what they're saying they need. And all 
is I just feel more ready than ever to like show up for that. I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but I'm, I'm stoked for it to reveal itself. So this is really the wild unknown. It is. What was the original intention when you came up with that term, that phrase, that name for the body of work? How, what was that meaning to you then? And what does it mean to you now? Well, it's lyrics from a Bob Dylan song. It's from the song Isis. It's like, so I cut off my hair and I rode straight away to the wild unknown country where I could not go wrong. Right. I had all these other names that I was working with at the time. And I found at some point when I was cleaning up my studio, this big piece of paper with like hundreds of potential names written on it. Like the paper was covered every little inch. And I just saw the wild unknown was like one of the little names in the, in the abyss of like all the names. And I had circled it. And so it just, it felt like it could keep giving and keep kind of morphing and adapting to whatever I was working on. And I thought, well, if it's from Dylan lyrics that already gives it some like Shakti and power. And if he says, I could not go wrong, you know, the wild unknown country where I could not go wrong. I'm like, well, I guess I can't, I can't go wrong. So this seems like a pretty good name. I mean, this was not like a business, great. It's not like a marketing meeting with like, you know, this is just me eight, eight years ago or so, you know, broke and tired and confused and wanting to find the way forward and landing on this name. Yeah. But I mean, what's interesting is that you could have just called it Kim Krantz. I mean, yeah. you chose, it's like a band. You're like, I'm going to name the band, but the band was you, <laughs> right? I so I didn't know that at the time. What did you think was happening at the time? At the time, I was making like a pseudonym or a, um, a moniker for, for my art that wasn't the art I showed at the gallery. So this was a, a fork in the road moment for you. Exactly. I didn't really want it to seem like just Kim Kranz because I still had this elevated idea of like Kim Kranz shows fancy artwork at a fancy gallery that's really expensive for, for you know, unconsciously for the elite to collect. And where this is like more accessible, it's a little more illustrative visually, and it's available everywhere. Crossing over from like one reality to the other, you know, one sphere to the other in terms of artwork was really hard for me. And it felt humbling at the time. And now I feel so uplifted by it because it's like how many people can hold the chariot card in their hand? I mean, tens of thousands instead of one person collecting the drawing that goes into storage in the climate controlled, you know, archive of the super rich collector. And the, and, and if that chariot was in that box in the crate, I mean, I used to work in museums in New York for years. I know what the archive looks like of collectors and the chariot doesn't get to be seen and people don't get to see that chariot. So there's something amazing about the, ability for this to get into people's hands, you know, for 30, 40 bucks instead of they never see it and, unless it's at a museum or a reproduction online. So the wild unknown allowed you to go down market yep, and become anonymous, essentially. So you wouldn't have to screw with the value of your gallery work. But in fact, what it sounds like would actually happen is you discovered your real work. Exactly. Hence, 
the labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> That's gorgeous. And so you, you, can, you can dodge this question if you want, but what is your real work? Oh, my God. <laughs> I think I am a maker of doorways. I think that's my job is to make doorways that are so enticing and so compelling to walk through, whether using drawings or language or writing that the person walks through into more mythic, intimate place within themselves that they didn't even realize they were headed towards. I think that nails it. I don't know if that's a real job description, but but there's something there's something in in that the idea of being a new door. I don't know if we told you this before you did the podcast, before you <laughs> you agreed to do this podcast. The general theme that we've got with the guests that we've had so far is I end up talking with them about their awakening experience and how their awakening experience influences what they do in the world, how they bring that awareness, that understanding into their action, generally their, their career. I love how you describe what clearly is your mission emerged for you in the making of the deck, of the first deck, almost like it snuck up on you. You didn't even see it happening until it was on the paper in front of you. And there's so many people who are in the art world, I think, who are probably looking for that kind of exit into what they really want to be doing. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, it's an amazing thing that you have that you've pulled off <laughs> in this way. Also, as a as a kind of a refugee from the art world myself, in a certain way, so I I can see that. And but so many people who are in that gallery driven fine art art world don't give themselves the freedom to express that connection to spirit that is clearly where you're you're hovering because they fear in part, that that market won't support it. Right. That there's not a, a, a context for that kind of exploration. I, I get it. I feel that hesitation. I, it's still inside me an unresolved dynamic. I mean, I follow a lot of artists and museums that I love and galleries I love on Insta. And I constantly am reminded of this. It's a little bit of a trigger of like, oh, your art isn't really the real deal. When I see the painting, just the way an oil painting looks in a gallery, simple as that. And I still have to go gently with myself as I navigate the, the kind of differences between those two realities, the up market and the down market. And it is so fascinating. And I'm glad to be perplexed by it because I know there's something there for me I know it will generate, it's, it's its own grit or agitation that will produce a pearl for me in the future. I just know it because it's still so unresolved in my mind. The difference between these worlds and what, what artists are really looking for and afraid to jump towards, it's a little bit endless for me right now. I could go on and on about it, but it's too vague in my mind, so I'll stop. <laughs> What you got to do is start inviting them to the full moon ceremonies you're going to show up at. Exactly. <laughs> Kim, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed this conversation. As have I. Thank you so much.
It only makes sense that Kim's creative process mirrors the process of the tarot itself. Pay attention to what the universe is bringing to you, whether it's from a card in a deck or an inspired insight that just suddenly occurs to you or a suggestion from a passing acquaintance. Whatever it is, wherever it came from, you are constantly on the receiving end of source speaking to you. Then you use your intuition, which is the resonance you feel in your heart to know what to do with what comes your way. Ultimately, it's about staying present, noticing, and interpreting. Tarot equals life. I want to thank Kim Kranz for being a guest on the podcast, and thank you two for joining us. You can follow Kim on her website, thewildunknown.com, and on our Instagram at Kim underscore Kranz. If you like what we're doing on The Evolver, please share these episodes with your friends through social media. Post a comment on iTunes. Send us an email at theevolver at evolver.net, N-E-T. Your iTunes reviews really do help us reach more people. And your comments have been great for helping us understand what we should be doing on future episodes. You can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or the podcatcher of your choice. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song, and our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.